the National Society of Genetic Counselors, this is the NSGC podcast series. Exploring stories of leading voices and best practices in genetic counseling. Now to your host. Welcome to the NSGC podcast series. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. In today's episode, each one of our podcast subcommittee members will be speaking with a different genetic counseling superstar to discuss GCs who pursue doctorate degrees. In our first interview, Naomi Wagner speaks with Janine Austin. Janine is a board-certified genetic counselor and past president of NSGC. She has a PhD in neuropsychiatric genetics and is a tenured research professor at the University of British Columbia, where she holds the Canada Research Chair in Translational Psychiatric Genetics. We are uniquely able to help patients. I genuinely believe that. And if we want to feel valued and respected and we want room to grow and we want autonomy because of this unique ability, then we have to be acknowledged as an academic discipline and that there's an evidence base for the interventions that we deliver clinically. Then I'll be talking with Jody Ingalls. Jody is the head of the cardiogenomics program at Centenary Institute and the University of Sydney. She is a cardiac genetic counselor with 17 years experience working with families with inherited cardiac conditions and sudden cardiac death. Us genetic counselors, we do tend to be those kind of overachievers that do have lots of self-doubts. So I think that it's just really important to believe in yourself and have people around you who remind you of that when you need it. And finally, subcommittee member Rowan Awad sits down with Heather Zierhut. Heather completed her PhD in 2006 in genetics, cell biology, and development with a minor in epidemiology. And since that time, her research focuses on the public health implications involved with the provision of genetic counseling services, such as access to genetic counseling in diverse communities to decrease genetics-related healthcare disparities. I really love my job. It was worth all of it to get to where I am today. The fact that I can come up with questions and ideas and create ways to test it, and I actually get paid to do this, is very rare. And so I think that for people that are thinking about it and that are thinking about doing it, I can also say that although there was a lot of sacrifice and it was challenging and continues to be challenging, I still am so grateful that I get to do this on a daily basis. And now over to Naomi and Janine. Hi, I'm Naomi Wagner, and I'm here with Janine Austin. Super excited to chat with you today. Welcome, Janine. Thank you very much. It's exciting to be here. So before we jump in, I just wanted to ask you if you could share with our listeners what a PhD degree is. (laughs) It's a good place to start, I suppose. Then this is actually really relevant to our profession because we've had all sorts of conversations over time about clinical doctorates and PhDs, and they're not the same thing. Um, So I do think this is actually a really good place to start. So PhDs are basically advanced training in research. Clinical doctorates, on the other hand, are advanced training in clinical practice. Not the same thing at all. So, So a clinical doctorate would be good for us if we felt that a master's level degree didn't give us enough expertise or competence in the clinical work that we're doing, which is a position I strongly and vehemently disagree with. A PhD, on the other hand, which would provide advanced training in research is something that I am a massive proponent for as far as genetic counselors are concerned. Great, thanks. 
definitely those terms have come up. And I think that's a helpful distinction for us. Also, because these terms might come up as well, could you share with us what a PhD supervisor is and what a PhD committee are? Absolutely. So your PhD supervisor is literally the most important person in your life as a student, essentially, because they're the person that you sort of report directly to, if you like. They're the person that has the overall responsibility for making sure that you succeed in your goals, essentially. Your committee are there um, to help support that and to um, provide guidance and feedback and all sorts of great stuff. They can be phenomenally useful. Um, But it's really your supervisor that you're going to be interacting with on a day-to-day basis. And so your relationship with them matters enormously. That's one of the pieces of advice that I regularly give to people who are considering PhDs is that, you know, really spend time thinking about who you want to do this with, because it's going to be, depending on where you study, if North America, five or six years of, you know, working closely with that person. And so you really want to make sure it's a relationship that's going to work for you. Good to know as well. I want to back up a little bit just so our listeners know. So you do have a PhD and a genetic counseling degree. Can you share what order you completed those degrees in? Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm a bit of a weird person in the sense that I did my undergrad and then a PhD. And then I completed my genetic counseling training after that. Lots of people told, asked me questions about why are you quote unquote going back to do your master's degree, and I, which is something that always made me rather incensed because um, as I explained to them it's an entirely different set of skills you know you don't you don't learn to do genetic counseling even if you've got a PhD in human genetics which I do Um, I learned how to use a pipette Mm -hmm. and an HPLC machine good times were had I did not learn how to communicate with people about about the complex concepts that we do in genetic counseling yeah so it sounds like your PhD was a wet lab PhD certainly was. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And did you know you were interested in genetic counseling when you were doing the PhD or was it farther along in the process where you realized that? Yeah. So, well, okay. So I did my undergrad and my PhD in the UK and my undergrad was in biochemistry and I'd done actually a six month stint at Duke university in North Carolina. It was sort of like a co-op term. And I met a genetic counsellor there. I wish I could remember her name. I cannot. However, it was one of these situations where, you know, the light bulbs all go off. And I was like, genetic counsellor, that's amazing. So when I went back to the UK, I thought I was going to train to be a genetic counsellor. But back then, there was only one program that existed. And when I contacted them, and I literally think it was by phone and snail mail, it was that long ago, they told me that they were really more interested in training people who already had clinical experience, so nurses and such, not people with undergrads in biochemistry. So I guess at the time I wasn't developmentally ready to consider leaving the country sort of on a more long-term basis to train mm-hmm. as a genetic counsellor. So I kind of put the idea aside and went, doing, went off to do my PhD thinking, stupidly, that <laughs> I might be able to get some clinical exposure that way. So yeah, my PhD was in neuropsychiatric genetics which actually is a deeply personal topic for me. I have quite the family history of different types of mental illness. And so Mm. my family, of course, started asking me questions. So is schizophrenia genetic? Mm. What about depression? What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your brother? And so that really made me realize that that whole genetic counseling idea I'd had previously, maybe there was a real need for it in this particular area. And so that was really what drove me off to go and do my genetic counseling training was the recognition that people with psychiatric disorders in their families might really benefit from what genetic counseling has to offer and nobody was doing it. 
Mm-hmm. So yeah, that, that was my path basically. Yeah. And do you feel like then you do regularly use both the training from your PhD and the GC degree? Mm-hmm. Every day. So interestingly nowadays, you know, so I am a full-time academic. I'm a researcher. I have a Canada research chair, but my research is not of the nature that I did for my PhD. Mm-hmm. Right. I don't do wet lab stuff now. If I have any wet lab stuff that I need to do for my research, I outsource it. I pay people to do, (laughs) you know, collaborators. I would too. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, I mean, it's good to understand what's going on on that side of things, but it's also really nice not to have to do it myself. So my research has, you know, I now do qualitative work as well as quantitative. I do everything I do is clinically oriented, um, which is not where my training was. So it's heavily influenced by both my genetic counseling and my PhD. Yeah. So this might be a hard question, but what do you spend the most time on professionally? That's a really hard question. Is there an answer to that question? I don't know. Not really. I don't know. It's, it changes daily, weekly, yearly. Um, there is a lot of administration. So I'm the executive director of a research institute for the last couple of years. So that, that takes up some time. I don't, and in fact, never have practiced clinically. Um, I did found a clinic. So we started mm-hmm. a psychiatric genetic counseling clinic here as a result of the, as a result of the research work that we've done showing the good outcomes that it can produce for people. And I have provided oversight and guidance and so on for the counselors that provide that clinical service but I don't I don't practice clinically myself and then yeah lots of lots of research and initially I guess I was doing lots of that like in the early days back as a brand newbie assistant professor kind of thing I was doing lots of that stuff actually myself and it's really evolved over the years such that I don't do anything at all myself any longer I'm providing like supervision and guidance for an amazing team of research genetic counselors and trainees who actually get the stuff done yeah And so do you mentor students who are getting genetic counseling degrees, PhDs, both? Both, all of the above. And I love it all. So I'm delightedly proud um, just to use this opportunity to crow to you all about how I just had my first PhD student graduate, Katrina Hitman, who is a genetic counsellor. So that was very exciting. And I'm currently involved in supervising two other genetic counsellors. So Tasha Weinstein at UBC and Colleen Kaleshu. Um, so that's really exciting. And I hope to take on another person in the fall, <laughs> but that's, that's to, be, to be announced. Everybody that I take on as a PhD student is somebody who's already trained as a genetic counsellor and that's very purposeful and strategic on my part. I do also supervise a large number of um, genetic counselling students for their directed studies projects and capstones and it's one of my favourite things to do as well. Yeah. So I've seen some conversations on Twitter about genetic counsellors with PhDs mentoring other genetic counsellors pursuing that path. What do you think the importance is of having genetic counsellors in these mentorship roles? Mm, Okay. So do you mind if I step back a little bit and sort of answer that question from a broader perspective? So for me, I think we've done a phenomenal job if I do say so, um, as a community about really establishing ourselves as a profession in the minds of people as leaders in the implementation of genomic medicine. I think that we have really come leaps and bounds in terms of how much we are recognized in that space, which is fabulous. Um, However, I think that to me, 
a big gap. Our next big challenge, if you like, is for us to establish genetic counselling as an academic discipline in its own right. Mm-hmm. Um, that, to me, is an absolutely crucial piece of what we need to be doing in order for our profession to mature. Like, if you look back at the history of nursing, the formation of PhD programmes was absolutely pivotal in, in their consolidation of their position um, and, and the degree to which they are taken seriously, essentially. And I, so I'd, I'd love to see us moving in that direction. So to get back to your direct question, mm-hmm. um, you know, if you're a genetic counsellor studying for a PhD under a genetic counsellor, it's just, it adds that depth of, of um, subject matter expertise that I think really enriches the, the work that we're doing. I, I do feel really strongly that genetic counsellors should be leading the research into what we do, why we do it, the outcomes that we generate and so on. I think, of course, other people should join us in those endeavours, but I think we should be leading wherever we can. This is our stuff and and we can do it. Definitely agree with that one. I, I'm wondering, though, if you think that genetic counsellors need a PhD to make major contributions to research. Absolutely not. So in fact, I would say that all of the members of my team have made major contributions to research and they don't all have PhDs. So yeah, I think the whole issue about how do you know when to do a PhD is a bit of a tricky one, frankly. I'm just going to be really candid, right? Mm -hmm. So I know that sometimes doing a PhD can sound really attractive because wouldn't it be nice to be called Dr. Austin? You know, that kind of thing. Um, But honestly, I think if that's the only motivation or the biggest motivation, it's going to get old really quickly. Doing a PhD is really hard and being an independent investigator is really hard. And for me, at least, I needed a cause that was bigger than me to keep going. It was that simple. You know, if it was just about me, I would have quit like way back. Um, So for me, I've always been motivated by wanting to make a difference for people who live with psychiatric disorders and their families. I know that what we offer as genetic counsellors is really impactful for this group of people. And yet nobody has access to it. Genetic counselling as a profession in general is still not really addressing that particular set of patients. Um, So that's my external motivator that I use. And I think another reason people do PhDs sometimes is because they don't know what to do next. You know, so school is a prescribed path. And so Mm -hmm. it's a way to drag out choosing what to do with your life a little bit. But again, I'm going to suggest that's not necessarily the best reason. So I think for me, the decision about whether or not to do a PhD, you know, particularly if it's with a view to a career as an independent investigator, is about the strength of your passion. Like if you've got a particular issue that you just can't leave unsolved or a, you know, a difference or a change that you really want to see made, then then a PhD might be for you. So as a follow up to that response, I was going to ask if you think it would make sense for someone to start a PhD without having that clear passion or, you know, would you ever recommend using the PhD to find that research passion? That w- that might work for some people. I, I didn't do it that way. So please take everything I say with a grain of salt. But it scares me. I think that if you're doing a PhD to try and find a passion, oh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I think the passion from my perspective or my experience at least has to come first. Because it can be long and sometimes quite challenging. In Canada, what's the time frame normally look like? What does getting a PhD normally entail? So in Canada, um, everybody says that PhDs usually take five years. The reality is that they often take a bit more than that, honestly. And that's full time. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. And so this is a big deal. It's a huge undertaking. 
Um, so, so yeah, it's not something that I think you want to go into without knowing really deeply for yourself why. Yeah. And, and, you know, let's be frank, you know, even if you get yourself scholarships and so on, it's not like you're going to be rich while you're doing your PhD. So yeah, I, I think it is something that needs to be carefully considered. I mean, I did my PhD in the UK where everything is very different. I didn't have any coursework that I needed to do. And I got mine done in three, three years and one week. I was very annoyed about the one week. <laughs> but um, so, so, but even still, I mean, three years is still not to be sniffed at, I think. Yeah. So what would you say has been the most challenging part of your academic path? Oh, good enough. Where do I start? So for me, I'm a first generation academic. You know, I'm the first woman in my family to go to university and um, only the second person at all. My dad went to, he did it, he got an undergrad degree. So I'm the only PhD in my family. So like, that's a challenge. Like if you've Mm -hmm. got nobody to ask about like, what is, like I have no clue about how systems work, how, what the institutions value and all of that kind of thing. And really the, what happens when you become an independent investigator is that really it's very much like suddenly being a small business owner that, you know, suddenly you have responsibilities for HR and for finance and, you know, budgets that are huge compared to anything I'd ever looked at before. And I had responsibility for all of this stuff with absolutely no training whatsoever. And it's terrifying. Just, Mm -hmm. just, I'm just going to call it as it is, is terrifying. And the people that I had taken on um, as a brand new assistant professor to, you know, help form, you know, my emerging research team were all incredible people. They were all research genetic counsellors. And the degree of um, responsibility I felt towards them and continue to feel, some of them are still with me, um, (laughs) is enormous. And, And there's nothing is guaranteed in research. You know, as you know, you my ability to keep people on in their positions depends on my ability to draw in external funding. And that's, mm-hmm. that's Sounds scary. So let's, let's turn to the positive. What's the most thrilling part of your academic path then? The trainees, they're amazing. Every single one of them. I just, I get such a kick out of, you know, people coming into their genetic counseling training programs and thinking, oh my God, I have to do a research project. I'm here because I wanted to avoid research. Don't you understand? And then gently, gently, gradually changing their minds and seeing them going, oh, this is actually really cool. It doesn't have to be like standing in a wet lab and dissecting things or, you know, you can actually ask people questions and get really cool answers and, you know, and generate data that could actually be used to change practice. And, you know, so I absolutely love that, you know, seeing, Mm -hmm. seeing trainees really come into their own and, um, you know, grow confidence and competence with doing research stuff. It's, it's the best thing. Yeah. I think I was in my twenties before I realized there was science research not done in a lab. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's not what we're exposed to, I think, in the paths that we've chosen to become genetic counselors. So, yeah. Well, any last words you want to mention about genetic counselors and research and the PhD path? Really, I think my key take home is that whether or not we're personally actively engaged in genetic counseling research, it matters too. And it does affect every single one of us in this profession. It's you know, questions like, why do we do what we do the way we do it, right? I know that sometimes in reality, the answer to that question is, well, because that's how we've always done it. But that's not really a very good answer. (laughs) 
you know, it would be nice if the answer was because that's how we help our patients the most effectively. Right. Mm -hmm. And and so that's really the purpose of the research that genetic counselors can uniquely do, I think, is is to is to answer those questions about value of what we provide. And um, yeah, so, I mean, I think if, you know, we we are uniquely able to help patients, I genuinely believe that. And if we want to feel valued and respected and we want room to grow and we want autonomy because of this unique ability, then we have to be acknowledged as an academic discipline and that there's an evidence base for the interventions that we deliver clinically. So, yeah, I think that the, the maturation of our profession, the next phase of development for us is about establishing genetic counselling research as a recognised academic discipline. Definitely. Well, I hope that inspires some people to think about what their burning research questions are. And I really appreciate you speaking with us today and hopefully inspiring some folks to think about their research more. Yeah, great. It was lovely speaking with you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Naomi and Janine. Now I'm excited to introduce our second speaker, Jody Ingalls. Jody, thank you so much for joining me today for a quick chat about GCs with PhDs. So this topic has come up, you know, frequently, I have to say, over the last few years under the guise of, you know, different angles, different perspectives. And so tell me a little bit about, you know, your educational journey. And particularly, did you know you were interested in PhD work when you started graduate school? You know, how, how did this whole story come about? Yeah, that's actually, it's a really interesting question. And it's one that I like to talk about, but other people don't often find it as interesting as I think that they should. So I'm very glad to talk about this. Um, So I never actually set out wanting to do a PhD or even really knowing what a PhD was. Um, I did a biomedical science undergraduate and decided at the end of that, that while I liked research, I really did not want to do basic science and you know, hang around in a lab and use pipettes and do research that kind of what I felt like didn't really make much of a difference. So that was actually how I got into genetic counselling was a way of moving out of what I thought research was, which was all basic science. And I love genetic counselling. I loved the patient side of things. And it wasn't until um, I got my first job in 2003, um, about six months after I'd graduated and it was actually working as a genetic counselor in a research environment as a, um, the, the, I think the, the name of the role was cardiovascular clinical coordinator. And that was with professor Chris Samsarian, who had just come back from Harvard at that time in Sydney and was setting up a research group focused around families with inherited heart diseases. And, you know, I took on that role and and I was in that role for a few years doing genetic counselling, but sort of also being in a support role um, in research. And and I just absolutely loved it. And to be honest, I never in a million years would have thought that I would be as, you know, smart or as capable as these amazing honours and medical students that would come through and do the research. You know, I was always the support person. And then it wasn't until about 2005 that my abstract got selected to the American Heart Association as an oral. And so this was, you know, like a, a genetic counselor with three or four years of clinical experience presenting in this huge hypertrophic cardiomyopathy session in Dallas. I'd never been overseas before in my life and it was just the most amazing life-changing experience. And I think from that point, I thought, 
this is what I want to do. I love genetic counseling, but I want to do research as well. Um, and so, and so I did. And so I did a PhD in the group that I was already working in and I've since stayed in that group working on the same conditions with the same families, with the same people. And only, only in the last six months, I've sort of moved a bit more sideways and now I've got my own group and, and lead a lot more of my own research. So it's kind of been a, a little bit of one of those journeys where you just keep on making decisions that make you happy, but never really with a end game in mind, but just, you know, finally finding your way to a place where you're happy. You know, what I find really interesting is you, you ended up in cardiovascular disease. So, you know, my next question was going to be, how did you choose your area of expertise? But maybe the area of expertise chose you, so to speak, in yeah. this case. I think that's really true. I mean, I don't think, I'm not sure if I would have done research if I hadn't found an area that I really liked. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, it was all just really opportunistic. And in terms of your advisor, which, you know, in in terms of doctoral studies is an important key component, was that something that kind of just happened organically? Did you, when you decided to do pursue a doctorate degree, is that something that you had to put a lot of time and effort in thinking about? How did you go about choosing your advisor? So the cardiologist who I had worked with for four years was the one who actually suggested that I do a PhD. And so it was just kind of natural that I would do my PhD with him. And, you know, a lot of my friends were PhD students in the group. And, you know, I I felt like I was going into it with my eyes completely wide open because I'd already worked with him for four years. So I think in that respect, I was actually really lucky I ended up finding a couple of additional co-supervisors who ended up being great as well. And I think, you know, in terms of choosing who your supervisors or advisors are, I mean, it's sort of one of those decisions that's really, it could be a make or break decision in terms of getting through your PhD. Um, You know, you want someone who is going to be human and um, approachable and who genuinely cares about you but also someone who knows the field and knows that if they don't know what they're talking about, that they can bring other people in to to help who do have that expertise. So I think choosing um, who's going to take you on that journey is really, really important. Now, in terms of selecting research questions, you know, once you've selected an advisor, you have an area of expertise that you're going to be dwelling in for a few years. For a genetic counselor, how important do you think it is to select a research question that is directly relating to genetic counseling or genetic counseling, you know, uh, tangential? You know, how do you go about figuring out as a clinical GC who, for whom clinical work is important, um, how to come about with a good research question? Yeah, I think that this is going to be variable for different people. I mean, I think that there's some people who want really focused genetic counselling type projects. Um, and so obviously in that case, you, you, you know, you really need a supervisor or an advisor who, you know, has quite strong research expertise in that area. I mean, for me, my source of inspiration um, then and even still now has always been the families that we see in our clinics and, you know, the, the gaps that you see in their care, the uncertainties that we're trying to communicate constantly. Um, that's always what's driven my research. And, 
so I think that that, you know, for me, that was kind of the inspiration for me to even choose to do a PhD. I think for other people, you know, potentially deciding on that, I mean, you really do have to, you have to know what you're passionate about because doing a PhD is really hard and staying in academia and research after your PhD is also really hard. And, and, you know, if it's not something that you're passionate about, it's easy to just think maybe this is just a bit too hard, be, you know, easier to go back to my clinical role, you know, something like that. You're someone I've long admired for your ability to continue to do clinical work. It's obviously something you love and continue to do, but you also balance your research role. And now that you have your own group, you're also balancing mentoring others and you are a doctorate um, advisor as well. Is that correct? I am. Yeah. I've had a, I had a PhD student graduate last year and I've currently got two students at the moment, one who's a genetic counselor and one who's a um, science background. All right, Jody, how do you do it? <laughs> if <laughs> that's really kind of you, by the way. And <laughs> if I, if I give the impression that I have balance, it's a big lie. <laughs> <laughs> there is absolutely no balance in my life, but it's kind of how I like it. Um, because I seem to make these decisions and then, um, and then end up in this mess where I'm really overcommitted. But at the same time, I don't think I would have it any other way. So, um, I'm really fortunate that I get to continue doing my clinical work. So I do, I do a handful of clinics a month. I tend to um, get the really interesting patients where I've been working on the genetics, especially um, into my clinics. And so I really enjoy getting to spend time with those families and be able to explain the results that I've worked on myself. But in terms of the research side of things, I mean, this is, why it all comes down to you have to find what you're passionate about because you know it's a it's a hard life I mean I know that there's lots of careers and lots of people's jobs that are hard but you know in basically all aspects of the world at the moment if you want to make research a full-time job and employ people you know you have a lot of responsibility you have a um you know you have a requirement to get constant grant funding otherwise the people you're employing will no longer have jobs and that's you know something that you have to consider at night when you go to sleep is you know how you're going to continue to pay for the really great people that you've got in your team um so you know you you end up end up having to push yourself quite hard you know if you don't have the track record you're not competitive for the grants and and then you know it's just it's just really really difficult so yeah, I think it, it really all comes down to passion. It doesn't matter so much if there's no balance, as long as you're loving what you're doing <laughs> and you're getting to work with great people and, and feel like you're making a difference and, um, you know, and you're surrounded by really great people in your team as well. There's a couple of things that you mentioned that I'm, I'm intrigued by, but the, the question I have is, in terms of skill set, and you know, when we interview uh, genetic counselors doing various things, I always like to go back to, you know, it sounds like you're utilizing the skill set that you learned as a genetic counselor, but what else have you learned along the way um, that you think someone who's, you know, considering going into a doctorate track or currently in a doctorate track could focus on or learn from or read about? Yeah, that's a good question as well. I mean, I think that that really, if um, if you're thinking about doing a PhD and you think that you like research, 
I think some of the really important um, qualities that you need to have are, you know, you need to be someone who's really curious. So someone who is, you know, always thinking about, you know, even when you're seeing patients and you're sitting there and they're talking to you and in your head, you're thinking, hmm, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, you need that curiosity, but I think at the same time, you also need a bit of um, creativity because it does take um, creativity to kind of think about, you know, different approaches to research questions and, and interpreting different findings. You know, this is probably a bit stereotypical, but my impression of genetic counsellors is generally that we are the sort of people that really want to make a difference. We're sort of overachievers. You know, we're very resourceful. Often we work in these positions where, you know, the role never really existed before we were there. So we've had to kind of plug in and fill in a whole bunch of gaps and, and really make things work. And often we're the glue that holds a lot of clinical services together. And I think that, that a lot of genetic counsellors would identify with that. You know, if you put those skills into a PhD, into research and academia, I mean, that's, that's a really, um, you know, killer combination in my opinion, because they're the sort of skills that you need. You know, you need to be able to be resourceful and you need to, um, you know, be passionate and vocal and stand up for the research that you're doing so that it can get acknowledged and it can get funded. So I think um, I think a lot of the skills that, you know, a lot of us as genetic counsellors probably innately have are quite useful for a PhD. It sounds also that advocacy is a big part of what you're doing now. So not only on your clinical side are you a patient advocate, but it sounds like obtaining funds, mentoring, you're advocating for yourself, the patient, but also um, the folks who work under you. Yeah, yeah, no, that's true. And that's, you know, another reason, again, why I think genetic counsellors, you know, potentially already have some of these, um, some of these skills that are useful for a PhD and for academia. Being the person who has to stand up and say, you know, these patients have this issue going on, and we could do research to better understand it, or to better develop interventions that could help support them. You have to make your voice loud enough over, you know, lots of the really hardcore scientists. And, you know, oftentimes I think people don't really take us that seriously. It does actually take a bit of grit and determination to kind of be loud enough so that people don't ever underestimate what we're doing. Yeah. So being an advocate is a really important part of it, I'd say. And you mentioned grit, which I think, you know, working in academia you require, but also in a clinical setting where, you know, facilities can lean towards the political um, side of things. Now, as more genetic counselors pursue doctorate degrees, either for career advancement or for interest, how important do you think it is for a genetic counselor um, considering obtaining a doctorate to search for an advisor who is a genetic counselor um, versus such as yourself who ended up being mentored by someone who isn't? Yeah, I mean, again, I think that it's nice to have diversity in our, you know, profession going forward. And, you know, genetic counselors supervising PhD students is absolutely amazing. And I think that that will help you know, ensure that some of these really important research questions are addressed. But at the same time, I think it's also important to have genetic counsellors being trained and working in other areas because, 
you know, it's often when you kind of put that genetic counselor lens on a problem that you actually see, you know, a really unique um, research question or, or solution for a patient population. So I think that there's a bit of both. Um, and I mm-hmm. think that even if you've got a genetic counselor as a supervisor, I do think it's important to still have other people in your kind of um, supervisor team who can um, also help mentor you and, and help provide expertise in different ways. Having the best of both worlds is what it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, as we close up, what advice would you give genetic counselors trying to decide even whether pursuing a doctorate degree might be, you know, the right choice for them? So I think you have to know, and this is actually part of what led me to this point, is that I knew that being involved in a few different research projects, I absolutely loved it. And I thought if I could wake up every day and have my day, you know, surrounded by doing that kind of work, I think I would be the happiest person in the world. And so you have to have a little bit of experience to know if that's that's the feeling that you get from doing research. And if it is, then you should absolutely go ahead and do it and find a topic that you're passionate about, find a topic that you absolutely believe in the cause, because if you don't, it's going to be really, really, really hard and potentially even too hard. Um, I think the other really important thing is to not doubt yourself. You know, like I said before, we're, we're often the underdogs. We're often, you know, the genetic counsellor, you know, um, working alongside of, you know, um, cardiologists or other medical professionals or basic scientists. And so it's often, it's easy for people to underestimate us and, you know, catch yourself when you start having that self doubt and that voice starts to pipe up saying, you know, maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I don't belong here. Cause I think that that's a really important aspect of it as well. Us genetic counselors, we do tend to be those kind of overachievers that do have lots of self doubts. So I think that it's just really important to believe in yourself and have people around you who remind you of that when you need it. No imposter syndrome allowed. I love that. Jody. thank you so much for spending time chatting with me uh, across the world. I am really looking forward to meeting you in person at a meeting, hopefully someday soon. I agree. Thank you so much. I've really enjoyed it. I'm now going to pass the mic over to Rowan and Heather. Take it away. Today, I'm speaking with someone special to me. Not only were we classmates in graduate school, but we also remain very much as friends today. Welcome to the episode, Heather. Good morning, Rowan. I'd like to start by having you share your educational journey with us. I remember you started pursuing your PhD shortly after completing your master's degree in genetic counseling. Did you know all along that you were interested in academia? I did. Um, Even when I was really thinking about where I wanted to go for my master's program, I thought about places where they were doing research, where I could get research mentorship. I knew that was kind of my long-term goal, but I didn't really know what that meant and how I could combine it with genetic counseling. So I knew I wanted to start with genetic counseling, and then I figured maybe I would gain some experience and then figure out what I actually needed um, in regards to my PhD. And so knowing this, Heather, how did you focus your PhD work? Specifically, how were you able to choose your supervisors? Yeah, that's one of the really, that's, I would say that's one of the most important decisions and probably one of the hardest as well. 
I knew I was going to stay in Minnesota. I loved my clinical job working in blood and marrow transplantation. And so that was my first decision is where I was going to be at the University of Minnesota. And then I started looking at degrees and what made sense. And I decided to continue on with um, really a basic science genetics degree that combined public health. And so that helped me focus on who at my university was doing that type of research. And there was really probably only about four or five people that met those criteria. And it just so happened that one of them had gotten a large grant and it had been publicized online. And it was right kind of what I was doing in regards to childhood cancer. And it really just felt like a great fit. So I emailed him. Um, He just so happened to email back really quickly. I cold called him. We talked and I could tell pretty quickly that it was going to be a really good fit. Mm -hmm. And so you were lucky to have that public health um, field accessible at the U of M. What about counselors out there who are thinking about a PhD program who are still thinking about which program to pick? There's wet lab track, clinical research track, etc. So what is your advice about knowing which program to pick? Right. Yeah. Um, I think that really is a very individual decision. And I think when you're deciding about where your progress goes, it's really important to take a step back and to think about that. Uh, Just like when you're going to be a lawyer and you're going to get a jurist degree or you're going to go into medicine, like the PhD track, how you're going to pursue it is very specific. Um, There's educational degrees that could be really helpful, for instance, if you were thinking about being a program director. There are, um, like you said, clinical doctorates if you want to expand your clinical training. Um, But really, a PhD is focused on research. So you have to love research. And to dig a little bit deeper then, what skills do you want to learn? And for me, I wanted to learn statistics. I wanted to learn methodologies like case control studies, cohort studies, randomized control trials. I loved data, so I loved digging into data, so I wanted to do some quantitative work. And that, to me, was really what are the skills that you want to learn in addition to what you already are an expert at when it comes to genetic counseling? Mm -hmm. Well, other than the skills, though, do you feel that counselors should be focusing their research topic on a genetic counseling-related issue? I would say that that is less of a um, determining factor for many people that I talk to. Mm -hmm. I think it would be wonderful to combine those. And I think there's some new programs that are able to do that. But really, we are genetic counseling experts. So what are the things that you want to research about genetic counseling? Do you want to research the process? What are the strategies, the counseling skills, the communication that we're doing? And how does that potentially lead to better outcomes in our patients and clients? Um, But really, to be able to do that, you need to understand the methodology that you're going to use. And that's the research part of it. So I think there's always ways, just like when you do advocacy work, for instance, and you you might be in a hospice center or you might be doing a text line, those skills are highly transferable to genetic counseling. So again, it's not specifically the topic of genetic counseling that that you're doing those counseling or those volunteer experiences for but it is highly transferable to genetic counseling. And I see that happen a lot in different PhD and doctoral degrees. Those are really good points, Heather. So taking just a step back, a lot of our listeners are spread all throughout the world. And I'm sure that some of them are really curious to know what a PhD track looks like in the United States. Can you comment more on how it was like pursuing that track at the University of Minnesota 
and what requirements exist for these types of degrees? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I would say in general, and again, this is different in different places, but in general, there's about two years of coursework that is required for a PhD. It's usually didactic courses. For me, it was things like molecular biology, genetics, epidemiology, biostatistics, different public health courses. And so that was really two years of being in courses, you know, taking exams, reading material, And then the last three years were really focused, and that can be three to five years. Generally, the time to degree completion for a PhD is five to seven years, Mm -hmm. hopefully more on the five end. And in those remaining years, you are focused on really doing your research, whatever that might look like. So that could be, you know, being at the bench, running experiments. It could be collecting data. It could be cleaning data. It could be writing papers. And in general, um, there are several different manuscripts that need to be written and published before you can defend. So kind of depends, but in general, it's somewhere around five to seven years. There are several genetic counselors out there without a PhD who have done amazing work and research. They've obtained their own research funding. They've done work in clinical trials, etc., How can counselors with or without a PhD get more involved in research? And what are some of the hurdles that might have to think about? Sure, yeah. So I think that one thing is to when you're in clinic, you see so many things and you can ask so many questions. And I think that's usually the basis of any research study is to ask a good question. Mm-hmm. And, and I think then where you can get help is how do I actually answer this question with a research study? And so one thing is to find research mentors, whether that's people that you work with in the clinic, whether that's someone that's associated with a genetic counseling program. You know, we always have students that are looking for projects um, and ways to work together. So what I've done is I've also worked and um, with either past students or supervisors here, and I can help to develop the methodology to think through some of the questions um, to help with the analysis, even writing the publication. So finding a mentor is I think really important, or even just other collaborators that can help you. It brings accountability, it brings structure, it brings rigor. There are several smaller grants, the Audrey Heimler Special Projects Award, um, the JEMF Fellowship, and those are wonderful opportunities specifically for genetic counselors that are looking to um, increase their their genetic counseling-specific research. So I would start there. This is all really helpful. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. I hope that you can just share with us some of the things that you focus uh, your work on and what you spend your most time doing professionally. Yeah. So when I think about my job, I, I have a lot of different roles and that's one of the things that I really love about my job. It's hard because what you just said that I was like, well, I spent a lot of time on email, but that's not the right <laughs> answer. Um, <laughs> So a lot of time is spent writing, though. As a researcher, you are um, communicating a lot. So whether that's, you know, working on student projects. So a lot of my time is spent mentoring my students doing research. It can also be planning my own research, which is grant writing, um, which can take a lot of time. And also then publishing papers, so crafting that research The individual data analysis is a part of it as well, Um, but I have a lot of people that I collaborate that help to do that process. So I would say my job is really meetings and writing and communication and a sense of delegation of working with different team members and coordinating that effort. 
So given all this, Heather, if you are provided the option to pursue direct patient care in your current role, would you take that on and what would your response be? Yeah, so that's a tough question because in my current role, I would say it's impossible. (laughs) Being on a tenure track research position means that my priorities are to be productive in research. The second component is my administrative role as a program director. My third is teaching. And so those are the three kind of tenets of um, being on a tenure track line, research, administration, and teaching. And as you can tell, there wasn't one that said clinical care. And so how I'm evaluated, the metrics that I'm using to be successful in my job do not involve the specific areas of clinical care. That doesn't mean that other types of positions don't have that. But for me right now, um, to be able to be successful at those three areas, there really isn't time for me to be doing clinical care. It was really hard to step away from my patient's and my ability to work clinically. But what I've found is that now I look at my role as a genetic counselor much differently. So I study the strategies of what we do for genetic counseling and how we can do a better job at helping our patients. And so I do think that eventually there could be a role in going back to clinical care, but I still find it to be highly rewarding and engaging to be studying actually what genetic counselors are doing in practice. Uh, So I actually think I would be a better genetic counselor now because of my research hat, but logistically, it's just way too challenging to try to fit in a clinical role. And so the reason why I bring this topic up is because I'm pretty sure there are counselors out there who love their clinical work and then just can't think about not being in direct contact with their patients who are also still toying around with the idea of pursuing a PhD. And so do you believe that having a PhD would limit the opportunity to pursue patient care? No, not at all. But to go back, you know, I think that being able to be in clinic, you can do so much research through your clinical roles as well. So I did a lot of like research on the side when I was in my clinical role. I had the support of the people that I worked with. Definitely was more time, um, but I was so passionate about it that I incorporated it. So I definitely think there's, first of all, ways to incorporate research into clinical roles. And second of all, I think that going back, again, I think I would be a better clinical genetic counselor because of my research experience. I think that if I was a full tenured professor and I had a lot more um ability to kind of craft my role. I think that I would definitely try to craft some clinical time, but I'm not there yet. I'm still really loving research and what I'm doing in research. Um, and so I don't think I would, I would necessarily go back to that, but I think it, again, I think it would make me a better genetic counselor because of my research. The University of Minnesota recently announced a combined genetic counseling and PhD program. Tell us more, Heather, about how this program is going to be conducted and what you believe the benefit of a combined program would be. Yeah, so this program started and it's really a lot of what I did for my doctoral training, except it's more efficient. It's less time. So our master's program is two years. A PhD is four years. What our PhD is going to do is combine that into a five-year program and degree. Mm -hmm. Um, The advantage of that is obviously that, you know, in 
as genetic counselors, we, you know, have some blind spots in regards to research and researchers and bench scientists definitely have some blind spots when it comes to how do I, how do I translate some of my research into the actual clinical care? I was, had the huge benefit of seeing a first in human clinical trial, and I was able to be that genetic counselor. And it was an amazing experience to actually see bench research go directly into a patient. So that would be one example of how an individual that had a joint degree with an MS in genetic counseling and a PhD in genetics, genetic epidemiology, or even specifically um, translational genomics, that's our hope is that these researchers can really understand um, what it's like to bring this research to the bedside um, and that they will push the field to be able to do more of that type of work. Mm-hmm. And so to be clear, this would be for somebody who's specifically interested in continuing on a research path. Absolutely. A research path and specifically one that is going to be on the bench and also potentially computational um, so it is, we're targeting people that really love the basic science piece of the research and that also want to see how they can do a better job of bringing that um, to practice. Mm-hmm. Believe it or not, this does speak to a lot of people out there. Uh, maybe not the majority, but there are some people who would be incredibly uh, honored to be part of this. What would you say has been the most challenging about your academic path? And specifically, were there any sacrifices that you had to make? Sure. Yeah. You know, research and academia are challenging in that it's highly competitive. I'm not a very competitive person. I'm, I'm much more collaborative. So I think that was culturally something that I needed to become um, more comfortable with. Mm-hmm. Um, academia can be pretty cutthroat. So there are, you know, small percentage of, small percentages of people that work up you know, kind of that academic ladder. And so being okay with that challenge, as well as being okay with failure. One of the things about grant writing and publishing papers and, you know, trying to get your information out into the world is that, as I was saying, it's competitive and there's a lot of failure. There's a lot of times when you'll spend a lot of time putting together some work and then you'll get a critique back and it's harsh and it's taking something that you're very passionate about and teasing it apart and saying, no, this isn't really as good as you thought it was. And so that can be um, heart wrenching and it can, it can be really discouraging. And so having resiliency, I think is one thing that's really important when you're starting down this journey, you're going to confront people that disagree with you. You're going to have people challenge you. You're going to feel like, your ideas don't matter. Um, but I think what you do gain is this true passion for what you want to do and what you believe in. And it makes that more clear as you get further and further down that journey. Um, so those are some of the things that I think are challenging about being in academics. You did mention the word resilience. And I think First, resilient you are, and it's 100% true just from what I heard from other people in this field. And this actually leads me very nicely into the next question. What would be your overall advice for genetic counselors trying to decide whether pursuing a PhD might be the right for them? Yeah, I mean, you really got to do some soul searching. I've talked with many people who are really debating this question, and 
you know, the questions that you guys are asking are, are really helpful in that, you know, what do you really want to get out of this degree? Do you want to be able to do research much more on a daily basis? Do you want to actually be working with data? Do you want to be mentoring other students or other people? I equate being a researcher as basically running a small business. I mean, you're managing people. You have to worry about budgets and funds. You have personnel. You have to continue to keep your um, your business going in order to get to product um, that you're going to give it to the world. And so it's a lot, a lot of work. And so when you're soul searching, you have to really think about what are the long-term things that I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be doing a lot of writing. I'm going to be managing people. I'm going to be on email. And um, what does that look like in your life? Because you also mentioned a, a word sacrifice and, and sacrifice is definitely something that you have to do. So I think when people are thinking about this, to think about those points And then how does that really impact my life and how is that going to help me in the future? And many of the people that I speak to that can answer those questions, this is absolutely what their decision should be. And for many others, like you were saying, it's very easy to do research in your job without having to go go through this entire PhD process. So I encourage people to continue to do research and move the field forward, PhD or not. Heather, this was such a great answer. Is there anything else you'd like to add about this topic that I haven't asked you already? You know, you asked a lot of really great questions. Um, I think the one thing that I just want to say, because sometimes it can seem pretty daunting to think about a PhD, is that I really love my job. It was worth all of it to get to where I am today. The fact that I can come up with questions and ideas and create ways to test it and I actually get paid to do this is very rare. And so I think that for people that are thinking about it and that are thinking about doing it, I can also say that although there was a lot of sacrifice and it was challenging and continues to be challenging, I still am so grateful that I get to do this on a daily basis. So thank you for bringing up this topic. Thank you for letting me speak with you today. And best of luck to all of you out there that are considering this journey. Well, Heather, thanks so much for chatting with me today and for sharing your thoughts on this topic. Thanks, Rowan. It was wonderful to talk with you. That concludes this month's episode of the NSGC podcast series. The podcast series would not be possible without our subcommittee members, our wonderful speakers, and our dedicated listeners. Thank you all for joining us month after month. Don't forget to rate the NSGC podcast series wherever you're listening to this episode and encourage your friends and colleagues to subscribe. This recording is produced by the National Society of Genetic Counselors. I'm your host, Kalita Leaquat. We'll see you next time.